I big-time Pete Sampras at his home course. I felt like the biggest schmuck of all time. Hey everybody, Trey Wingo here. Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. I hope your summer is going well, but I doubt it's going as well as the summer of 1984 did for America. It was a remarkable year. It was uh, a year where Michael Jordan played in his first Olympic Games and absolutely took it to Bob Knight. It was a year where Larry Bird and Magic Johnson played against each other in the NBA Finals. It was a year where Wayne Gretzky won his first Stanley Cup taking down the New York Islanders. The Cubs! The Cubs won their division and still didn't get to the World Series, but still, they won their division. A lot was happening, and John Wertheim, who does great work for 60 Minutes uh, and Sports Illustrated, has put this all together in a new book called Glory Days, the summer of 1984, 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA album came out. Prince came out with the Purple Rain album. It was amazing. Recently had a chance to talk to John about the book and how crazy that summer was in retrospect. Obviously, John, I've respected your work at Sports Illustrated Forever and uh, 60 Minutes. So it's just great to talk to you. Thanks for uh, thanks for wanting to come on. Oh, right, right back at you. No, pleasure. Glad we could do this. Obviously, you have a great book out called Glory Days, which I have a copy of right here about these. Put it right in the middle of the frame. There we go. Uh, the summer of 84, 90 days that changed sports and culture forever. I would agree, as I was telling you before we got started here, that was the year between my junior and senior year in college. I remember that summer vividly for what you have in the book and many other things that we won't discuss, but it was one of my favorite summers of all time. But before we get into that, obviously, you're a big tennis guy uh, and... There's a couple. I think tennis, men's tennis, is at a real interesting point right now because we're at the crossroads of the big three potentially no longer being as big as the three have been. Uh, we saw Djokovic win his 19th uh, slam at, at the French, coming from two sets down against Tsitsipas. Uh, obviously, Federer and Nadal are there at 20. When it's all said and done, is Joker going to be the one that people will consider the greatest of all time? Oh, man. I mean, what, one thing I've realized is that n- nobody changes their opinion. Nobody yeah. can, that no one can be swayed. I mean, Djokovic could win 100 majors and people would still say, yeah, but Federer was flashier or, or Nadal uh, yeah. did, did it uh, w- with more fight. Um, I, I think it's funny because tennis has been obsessed with this conversation for, as you know, as well as anyone, you know, for, for the last 10, 15 yeah. years, everyone's been obsessed with this greatest of all time and, and who's going to retire with the most majors. And now that we're finally getting a conclusion, nobody wants to accept it. So I, I think statistically on paper, Djokovic probably, uh, you know, I, I think he probably is going to make the strongest empirical case, but I think, you know, it's like Jordan and LeBron. I mean, people, people that love Federer are not giving an inch. No, no one is changing right. their mind here. The goal, the goalpost just changed. Well, I, I may be the unicorn then because I have been staunchly Federer for a long, long time. But, you know, he's 39. He's he's a sixth seed at Wimbledon now, which that just, I mean, saying that kind of makes me want to puke. He's seeded sixth at Wimbledon where he's won eight times. But uh, empirically for me, if I, if I have to look at it, Joker is younger. He's one behind. He's way more likely to sort of accumulate more than what Nadal and I think Federer are going to at this point. And to me, as good as Rafa is, and he's amazing, 
13 of his slams have come at one event. That's two-thirds of them have come on one surface, which, as you know, is the quirkiest surface of all at the French Open. So it's easy for me, and that may be really bad on my part. It's easy for me to say, let's just put him over here for a moment and then focus on Federer versus Djokovic. I always thought that, that Federer was the most elegant athlete I've ever seen, and Joker certainly does it differently. But at the end, at the end of the day... If it's about how many do you have, I think he's going to have that crown, and that's going to be hard to get away from. But you mentioned elegance. Doesn't grace and nimbleness, doesn't that count as part of greatness? And isn't it unfair that Federer had to go first? So he set the yeah. standard. Everyone else knew exactly the level they had to clear. Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm objectively, I'm probably with you, but I think that uh, – People are, it's like, uh, what do you call it? It's like those balloon animals. People are like contorting great <laughs> uh, uh, any way they want. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they all tie at 20, but no, I, I think you're right. Yeah. If, Djokovic, if Djokovic wins Wimbledon, because whenever yeah. this year is, I suspect uh, won't have happened. If Djokovic wins Wimbledon, he'll be tied. Then right. he goes to the U.S. Open. He could eclipse them. He goes to Australia, which he's won nine times next. I mean, this, this may be – I mean, he may just bury the whole conversation in the next six months. Which is so funny because when Federer won 20, we were like, that's crazy. And I, I was at Wimbledon when it happened. I'm like, okay, we looking at 21? We looking at 22? But, you know, outside of the Tom Brady argument in football, father time does eventually win. And Roger at 39 – have we seen the last of him, in your opinion, in terms of hoisting one of those slams? Um, I, I got to think this. Wimbledon 2021 is about the last best chance. And yeah. it's side chance. It's, it's grass. It's his surface. Nadal's not playing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, the, the funny the one that always gets me is um, when I first started covering tennis, it was when Sampras was finishing. And, right. you know, Pete Sampras is, I mean, I don't, I don't think, he's not 50 years old. He's 49 years old. He didn't turn 50. He leaves tennis and he retires with the most. And it's like Wilt Chamberlain's 100 point, get like done. Like this thing is lasting for decades and decades. Pete Sampras isn't even got from the scene 20 years. He's not even 50 years old and he's a, a distant fourth. So, um, you know, these, uh, these, these records go fast. Uh, Funny story. I, I got to tell you this. Uh, two years ago, we were out in uh, L.A. and I got a chance to play golf at Bel Air with a buddy of mine, Marty Fish, uh, who obviously, you know. And uh, so we were, we're there and I was driving down to the range and uh, the range is from the first tee is downhill. And this guy comes on the other way and says, hey, be careful. We had a little rain. It's a little slippery on the car path. I'm like, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Did not recognize him at all. Then, of course, we went on the course. It was Pete Sampras. He was telling me to, you know, like, he's got the beard now, and he had the hat. Like, he did not look like Pete Sampras. I actually had to apologize to him later. I said, hey, man, I actually didn't recognize you. And he called me by name. I felt like such an idiot. Like, he's he he knew who I was, and I was like, oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Like, I big-time Pete Sampras at his home course. I felt like the biggest schmuck of all time. Um, knowing Pete Sampras a little, he would never hold that against you. It actually, honestly, it's probably a source of pride. That this is uh, <laughs> the opposite of attention seeking is. That's him. Yeah, and then there's the women's side. Uh, it, do we think Serena's ever going to get there? I mean, that's the other side, right? Because it seemed like that was a foregone conclusion for the last three or four years, and now suddenly that's hit the brakes. You know, so, so Roger Federer is kind of this, this elegant guy from Switzerland and Serena's from, you know, East L.A. And they, I mean, for as different as they are on the surface, it's amazing the parallels. So they're both 
39 years old. They're born within a few weeks of each other. They're both parents. They're both sort of, it's been a while since they've won. It's exactly the same. You know, he's, he's trying to win uh, 21 and extend this lead. She's trying to finally tie Margaret Court and win 24. And it's kind of the exact same. It's the last best chance. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen on grass. They actually, like to the decimal point, have the exact same winning percentage at Wimbledon over the years. Um, it's really a lot of the same kind of uh, themes and storylines. And then, of course, the other discussion in women's tennis has been what's uh, gone on with Naomi Osaka and the move she made to pull out uh, of the French Open and really put a light on on mental health. And I, I mentioned Marty Fisher's name earlier. For those that don't know, Marty at one time was the number one rated uh, player in the U.S. and had a quarterfinal matchup with Roger Federer at the U.S. Open and sort of broke down and and like could not get to the get to the event like he really had an anxiety attack and and had to withdraw from the sport so he's very acute and aware of the mental pressure that tennis brings because you're out there on your own even a golfer has a caddy you know you you are out there trying to figure it out on your own and Naomi has uh, put a spotlight on that what was your take on that situation and how it was handled both by tennis and by Naomi um yeah I mean I, I think you I think you nailed it. This was about one athlete and a mental health struggle. And this wasn't yeah. Marshawn Lynch. And this wasn't a crusade against the media. And this wasn't sort of a defiant athlete who now makes all this money and she's going to buy her way out of inconvenience. She really didn't think the same way Marty Fish had a, had a, you know, I mean, he talks about this pretty openly. So I think we're, you know, yeah. Marty Fish, full blown panic attack that prevented him from playing a match. Massive. Yeah. Same, same thing. And I think this is, was about her and her mental health and her level of comfort. This wasn't about this sort of system that needed to be brought to its knees. And I, I was, I mean, if you're in tennis, sort of everyone knows everyone and there are not a lot of secrets and everyone knew that Naomi Osaka's had these struggles. She's alluded to them. I mean, she's talking about, you know, she hates winning tournaments because she has to do this trophy presentation and give a speech and she's so uncomfortable. I mean, people knew this. I, I was surprised that the tournaments responded as they did. No, knowing Naomi Osaka, yeah. Knowing sort of some of uh, what, what she deals with, knowing her personally, they took this as Marshawn Lynch saying, like, you know, F the media, we're done with this. And it took a very right. strange hardline stance. And I think that just sort of escalated things. And then it uh, no one looked good here. Yeah. How much I'm mean, just I literally this just popped into my my brain. How much do you think that or any of it might have been framed by what happened when she won her first slam at the U.S. Open when Serena sort of melted down and and there was all this controversy and, and the booing and everything and sort of Serena not winning sort of eclipsed Naomi winning. And Serena had to actually get up there at the champ at the presentation and say, look, she should be a praise for what she did. It was, it was a really awkward situation for a young woman to be in. Yeah. But imagine you're winning your first major and uh, you're, you're taking down the mighty Serena Williams. It's this absolutely yeah. transformational moment for you. And all you hear are boos, and it's weird, and you don't know what to say, and you don't want to embarrass Serena, you don't want to take a victory lap, and you end up crying. You, know, you look profoundly unhappy when this should be the happiest moment of your life. But um, I, I think, you know, I, I just think that um, it, it's exactly what you said before. This is a rough sport, and people think, oh, it's, it's precious, and it's preppies, and it's country club, and it's really not that at all. I mean, I would say, e no. even in MMA, the, the horn sounds in MMA, and like, you get a minute of guys patting you on the back and giving you coaching and squirting water in your mouth and telling you how great you are. I mean, this tennis thing is you are absolutely on your own. I mean, if, if you 
get if you get coached during a match, you get penalized for it. Um, and I think that yeah, I, I think some players love it, and I think for others that really exacts a price. Well, it is, and I've been fortunate enough to be at Wimbledon in the U.S. Open a few times, and there were, I can't remember the name of the player, but I was with Marty at the time, and it was either in the semis or the finals, and he broke down, you know, at a changeover, and Marty's like, he's breaking down because he's struggling right now. He, he really doesn't know how to fix what he can't do, and, it, and listening to Marty talk me through that, I looked at that situation completely differently. I wish I could remember the name of who yeah, it was. I was, uh, uh, no, was yeah, either... Aaron Chilich when he played Federer in the finals. Yes, it was Chilich. That's exactly right. But, and when 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 Federer won his twentieth, and Chilich was like, nothing's working. He he couldn't figure out a way, and he was just exposed. And I think that's the thing that people don't understand about tennis. And thank you for indulging my tennis itch, by the way. But it is like you know you play until the, you break the other guy. I mean, or the other player. That that's sort of the way it is. Either you're going to win, or or the other person is. It's not timed. It's like you have to finish. And, and I think that's the thing that makes it sometimes the most excruciating game mentally for these guys. Tennis is not uh, soaring in popularity. I mean, you know, worldwide it does pretty well, but in the U.S. it's not exactly soaring. And I'm thinking, I don't know, if I, if I were nine years old and I were a really good athlete, then I can, hey, we're going on the basketball team, we're all going on the bus, and if we win or we lose, we're going to get McDonald's afterwards. That is a much different exercise than it's me and me alone on this court, and as long as the ball's in play, i got to solve this thing myself. And it's, you know, Andre, Andre Agassi, you know, solitary confinement. That might be overstating yeah. the case. But, yeah, I mean, it, it takes a special kind of athlete to want to do that with your, with your athletic talent. Yeah, and, and real quickly before we move on, Agassi was one of my all-time favorite players because the guy was here and then he was down. Got to wake get up again, down again, came back up again. He was one of my all-time favorite athletes to ever watch okay the real reason we have you on the show today is because you have this great book out glory days uh, about the 90 uh 90 days in the night summer of 1984 so i i always am curious about this for people who undertake writing a book like me writing a blog post is uh, excruciating so uh what was it about this particular stretch of the summer of 84 with everything that was going on that really attracted you to the idea of trying to put it together uh, I mean, the, the origin story for the book, it's, it's not the sexiest thing, but I I was between my seventh and eighth grade year of middle school, and I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. The Olympic trials are going on because Bob Knight, the coach, is sort of the, the general. Everyone comes to him, and among them, you know, was Mike, Michael Jordan's one of the guys, and he's he's left North Carolina. He hasn't been drafted yet. He's kind of this lonely sort of schleppy kid in the middle of my town. He'd run into him at the movie theater and he's looking for a fourth to play putt-putt mini golf with. And he's kind of, you know, kind of a lonely, bored guy. And, you know, I, I just, just by very, you know, it's a quiet town where the students are gone. I would run into him and he, I'd have my tennis racket and he would call me John McEnroe and you'd, you'd see him waiting in line to get a smoothie. It wasn't a big deal. Um, and then by the end of the summer, he's Michael Jordan, and he's got a Nike deal, and he's the third pick, and he's got an Olympic gold medal, and he's on the cover of Time magazine. And um, I, I wrote a piece about it for Sports Illustrated, and someone's like, oh, you should do a book on that. I, thought, I don't think there's a book on that, but I, I sort of started poking around about all the other stuff that went on that summer. And you realize that, first of all, that that's just an insane summer in terms of the sheer concentration of events. Um, and it also occurred right. to me that there's a metaphor there that, that – um, Sports and culture in general, like Michael Jordan, started the summer uh, at one place and they ended the summer at, at somewhere else entirely. 
Yeah, it's funny to think of what you just said now because everything about the Olympics and almost every large sporting event is so professionally polished now, for lack of a better term, and you know, sort of uh, put in a bubble and put over here where you can't have the access that you were talking about. But before we move on to some other stuff about that summer, one of my favorite quotes ever in sports history was about the Olympic trials for the 84 basketball team. When Charles Barkley, who did not make the team, by the way, Charles Barkley did not make the 1984 team, um, which was a crime that I can't even begin to tell you how bad it was. Not that it would have mattered. We would have slaughtered everybody. Uh, We being the U.S. pejorative um, was that he was lighting up the trials and he had the nickname as the bread truck when he was at Auburn because he's just a big hefty dude. And one of the NBA scouts who was there said, if they cut the bread truck, I'm pulling for the Russians. That's how much they wanted to see Charles Barkley at the Olympics. And we finally got it in 1982 when he punched an Angola player. We were deprived of that for eight years. So I, I was happy to see him get that. But I'll, that's one of the one of the, my favorite quotes of all time in Sports Illustrated. If they cut the bread truck, I'm pulling for the Russians. I'll tell you, one of my favorite quotes in the book was actually from from Bob Knight, who you're right. But Barkley, Barkley basically wanted to go to these trials to boost his draft stock. He didn't right. like Bob Knight. Bob Knight didn't like him. Charles Barkley couldn't figure out why he was taking shit from this, like, who's who's this grumpy man? I'm not getting paid here. And Bob yeah. Knight had news for Barkley, and uh, Barkley would tease Knight. And Knight was at the peak of his powers. No one ever challenged him. And, you know, he'd walk in, and Barkley would say, you know, did did someone, did, did your grandpa die? I can't figure out why else you'd be wearing a sweater like that. Or, uh, you know, <laughs> Knight would walk in late and Barkley would look at his watch and say, whose time do you think this is? We'll be waiting all day for you. And Knight's quote, which uh, I, I think I got in the book. I don't I, I think I put it in there. But it was my favorite was uh, there, there's only one general in this army and it's not you, fat boy. That was uh, <laughs> pretty good. Right? I was, I That's was pretty good. But uh, I like the bread truck, too. Yeah, I, I, just, I just love that. If they cut the bread truck, I'm, I'm pulling for the Russians. <laughs> Uh, and another, by the way, I heard this story years ago uh, from somebody that uh, it's one of those things that you've heard and you hope it's true. And I don't know if it's true, but, uh, you know, Knight was trying to figure out a way to motivate everybody. And if you feel if you realize you find a way to rip Jordan, if you can rip Jordan, everyone will like, well, if you're going to yell at Jordan, you can yell at anybody. And I think he said, Jordan, are you going to set one GD screen one time in this practice? I haven't seen you set one screen for everybody. And Jordan turned back to him and said, coach, I've set him. I just set him so fast you couldn't see him. <laughs> Exactly. Knight, uh, Knight would sometimes say to Jordan, look, I'm about to yell at you and I don't really mean it, but just take it. And it's funny yeah. because Knight and Barkley had no use for each other. Knight and Jordan kind of that was like a radio turn to the same like station like they got each other. And yeah. uh, they, you know, Jordan had this quote that he said, you know, I learned the four corners offense from Dean Smith and I learned the four letter word from Bob Knight. But the <laughs> the truth is, Jordan and Knight, and we, you know, we saw a little bit in the last dance. Like Jordan and Knight got each other, and uh, yeah. you're you're right though that Knight Knight would yell at Jordan just mostly because uh, it would send a message to the rest of the team that no one was above his authority. Yeah, and the Olympics, obviously, because it was such a show, it was in L.A., it was a profitable thing. I remember the opening sequence at the Coliseum. They had all those pianos in there. I mean, it was just this massive display of Americana after we had boycotted the 1980 Olympics and then the Soviet bloc boycotted these Olympics and led to Mary Lou Retton and all this kind of stuff. Of course, now the women's gymnastics team is the gold standard in the United States, literally, and 
Everyone's trying to beat us. That was not the case before 1984. And that was the first sort of Olympics where they became the dominant team uh, in women's gymnastics. But there were so many other things that went on that summer. And one of the early titles or chapters of the book is called The Great One. And, you know, the, the New York Islanders had had a stranglehold on the Stanley Cup. Uh, Ken Morrow, by the way, who played, def- side note, again, one of my favorite athletes of all time. He was on, uh, he was a defenseman for the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team that upset the Russians on one gold in Lake Placid. He went directly from the, the Olympic team, the U.S. Olympic team, to the Islanders and proceeded to follow up his gold medal with four straight Stanley Cups. Like, that's the greatest run of all time. No one's ever going to top that. But, you know, that was the summer or the spring where that run ended and Wayne Gretzky became Wayne Gretzky for those people that weren't huge hockey fans. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, statistically what he was doing was incredible, but also it was a little like Jordan and the Bulls, where it was, you know, great you're putting up all these numbers and great that, uh, you know, every player in the league says how talented you are, but you haven't won anything. And you had this huge Islanders dynasty, and I think Gretzky always liked the fact that they won the cup that year for the first time. You know, the summer summer of eighty four was the first cup he won. And he wasn't even that good in, in the Stanley Cup finals. It was a sort of spread the wealth team thing. But before then it was just silly what he was doing with these uh with these hockey records. But this was kind of the one thing missing was is he good enough to make everyone around him better? And uh I, I think he took a lot of satisfaction, not just from finally winning and he now he's got a Stanley Cup and he shut everyone up, but also the way the way they did it, beating the Islanders, was kind of ugly, scrappy team hockey. Well, those those Islander teams were not afraid to mix it up with with Billy Smith as your goalie. You know, Mike Bossy was a star, but Denny Potvin, all those guys, uh, that was an amazing team. It is funny just to go just to listen to the list off the chapters here in the book. Johnny Mack and Martina, uh, Larry versus Magic, the Trump card. Uh, for those that don't know, before he became a president and a reality TV show, TV show host, Donald Trump tried to make the USFL the next best thing. And it was working for a while until he tried to go up in the fall a few years later uh, against the NFL. And that was the undoing of the USFL. Yeah, I, you know, as, as much as we talk about Trump, I mean, as much as he's been in the ether the last five, six years, I, I don't know. If people realize the extent to which sports played this role in his um Sort of his, his celebrity and his myth making in uh, sort of sort of this phenomenon of, of Trump. He was kind of this local New York real estate developer that people knew the way they knew, you know, Lafrac or some of the, you know, just kind of these. If you're right. in the New York area, maybe you've seen the building. In '84, he's on the cover of GQ. He's on the cover of New York Times Magazine, and it's basically here's this rich guy in his late 30s that's buying a football team and. What he did with, I hadn't really realized this. I mean, you're, uh, I don't know if you ever worked with, Charlie Steiner was the voice of yeah. the, uh, of the generals and was sort of, a, it was a good source on this chapter. But I mean, basically it's the exact same playbook. You know, he, he held the press conferences at Trump Tower and he came down the escalator and his family was involved. You know, I think his, I think his, his wife did the cheerleader uniforms and there are all these lines in the coverage about sort of the, the general's owner, Donald Trump. Uh, we're not always sure if he's telling the truth, but he sure is magnetic. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of these things yeah. you could just cut and paste. And Amazing I, that that seemed to carry on like that yeah, still uh, it still yeah. went through. He uh, he was committed to the role. Uh, it's probably yeah. a middle of the road way to put it, but um, yeah, I mean, there, you know, there was a thirty for thirty about the USFL, but that was obviously before he became a politician. I I was just blown away by how it was the exact same blueprint 
And yeah. and I also think like sports fans maybe have overlooked the extent between USFL trying to get NFL ownership, which he wasn't able to do, the pro wrestling, even UFC. Um, sports are really pretty central to his elevation. And for as much as we talk about him, I'm not sure that's gotten enough credit. Yeah, well, I mean, he always went for the splash. He signed Doug Flutie. You know, he signed Herschel Walker uh, to the New Jersey Generals, and they were a very good team in the USFL. And we can talk about a lot of the sports things, like Bird versus Magic was incredible. But on the on the cover of the of the book, there's a there's a, down low there's a picture of Prince and a picture of Bruce Springsteen, and Purple Rain and Born in the USA were both albums that came out that summer. And you want to talk about two albums? that were so decade or era defining in completely different ways. But, you know, the subtitle of the book is 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. It's hard to imagine anything from those summers that summer without talking about those two music icons being a giant part of it. You know, I I was trying. I mean, there's there's always a team that wins the NBA title. There's always a song of the summer. And I try. I mean, I had to kind of convince myself that this was really disproportionate. And, and I was, and I think I, you know, I think I was like, you know what, pick any summer. They don't have this much stuff. And then I, you know, I tried to kind of figure out why. And the, the best I came up with was you had this huge rushing force of cable. And so, everyone, you know, Bruce Springsteen obviously had albums before Born in the USA. Prince had albums before Purple Rain. But they were kind of these fringy alternative guys. You didn't really, I mean, you didn't necessarily know what they looked like. You didn't know what they were about. You liked the music. We had this thing in 1984, the, the video, and this new network, MTV. We 1984 is a summer we all started getting two boxes. One of them was this cube-like computer that smiled when you yeah. turned it on, called the Mac, that this guy, Steve Jobs, tried to make uh, a, a nice home appliance and not this cold piece of technology. And the other box we got was a cable box. And this was a summer where you didn't just release music. You had this, you know, you had this little four-minute uh, video to go with it. And so... You know, I mean, people knew Bruce Springsteen was, but they didn't know. You know, here we saw him and the denim and the bandana, and he's he's pulling the girl out of the audience, and it's Courtney Cox, and we see right. Prince, a wacky guy on a motorcycle dressed in purple, and like, I, I feel like part of the reason these albums were the forces they were. I mean, these are really the the two seminal albums for both those guys, and they came out within a couple of weeks. I mean, literally, I think don't quote me on this, but uh, there was like a four week window where everything came out on a Friday, and it was like. Born in the USA, Ghostbusters, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Purple Rain, and uh, Karate Kid were like back to back to back to back Fridays. Um, That's nuts. And I, I think what I, but I think with the music, I think part of it is that we really got this connection because we didn't just hear the songs; we got to see these guys, and they were pretty cool. And they rode motorcycles, and you know, wore, wore denim. And I feel like the connection to to Prince, and, and not just you know Madonna. I mean, the, all the the artists. I think we really had this music connection because we also. For the first time, we all got to listen and see them at the same time, thanks to MTV. Well, not only that, but you, you another chapter, chapter 16, is the Victory Tour, which is about Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. And I, listen, I was a camp counselor in Alabama that summer. And like two days after we were done as a camp counselor, we went to the Michael Jackson Victory Tour concert in Nayland Stadium at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And you want to talk about like going a culture shock back into the normal or not normal in any way, shape or form, but the the world in general. We were, you know, I 
had been hiding out in these log cabins and stone uh, lookout mountain in Alabama for two freaking months. And then two days after that, just whoosh, we go back and, and it's uh, Michael Jackson in concert. It kind of freaked me out. I'm not going to lie to you. I was like, what the hell am I walking back into? It was a really weird, really weird night for me on a lot of levels. But yeah, Michael Jackson was part of that summer as well. That's uh, it's a cultural whiplash. I, I don't know. I mean, be, be, I don't know. If, have you heard this story about Bob Kraft and the Patriots and Michael Jackson? Have you heard um, that? I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, some people, I, I, you know, I didn't, I'm not the first person to stumble upon this, but basically the, right. the story in the book is Michael Jackson's, you know, king of pop. He's got Thriller out. He's the biggest, you know, he's, I think he's more most recognized person in the world and like Mother Teresa's second and Princess Diana's third. I mean, just <laughs> the biggest towering celebrity that parents say, you know what? We got to get ours. Time to spread the wealth, Michael. So he does this victory tour with his siblings. And Michael doesn't want to do it. And it's that same year where, remember, the Pepsi commercial, he, he burns right. himself physically. Lit on fire, yeah. Don, Don King somehow becomes the tour manager. And it's bankrolled by the Sullivan family that owned the Patriots. And the tour is an absolute fiasco. And their cost overruns and their dancers. And they have to... You know, it takes dozens of semis to like build and rebuild the stage every time they play. And the brothers make a lot of money and Michael makes money, but the tour's a big loser. And the Sullivan family that bankrolled it had to sell Sullivan Stadium um, to, to pay for the debt of this tour. And so basically a number of dominoes have Bob Kraft ends up getting the land around the stadium and then the stadium and then finally the Patriots. And, and Bob Kraft apparently has a, he has got a poster of the victory tour in his office. And the joke is, you know, if, if Michael Jackson had gotten along better with his brothers, he never buys the team and <laughs> Belichick and Brady never happened. So uh, the Michael Jackson victory tour is uh, sort of the, the butterfly that got the, the Patriots their Super Bowl rings. Well, I, I love that story because I'm a big I'm a big fan of like one thing changing everything. Like Here's one of my favorites, and it's kind of a, a limb, but bear with me here. Like if Henry VIII hadn't wanted to bang Anne Boleyn, America might never have been formed. Let me explain, okay? Uh, he was married of Catherine of Aragon, Henry VIII was, of Spain, but she couldn't bring him any sons, so he wanted to annul the marriage, and England was a, under the cat, rule of the Catholic Church at that time, and they were like, no, we're not going to annul the marriage. You know, you, you tried to have kids, and they just weren't sons, so that's it. We're not annulling the marriage. So Henry VIII is so upset, he says, screw that, we're no longer Catholic, I'm going to form the Church of England with different things. And the reason the pilgrims and the Puritans left England because they didn't like the Church of England. So so if it hadn't been for Anne Boleyn really wanting to get with King Henry VIII, who knows where we would be as a country right now. So I'm glad you brought that up because you could extrapolate things to those points on a lot of different places, and it's a really wild ride. That's not even that many dominoes. Um, no, I mean, that's, um, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you a quick one in the book that I, that I got to kick out. It was not quite, as, uh, not quite as grandiose. That's a good one. Yours is good. I never, I never uh, I've been that. working on that one for a while. Thanks. The uh, no, the, the the best one I had in the well, I don't know, it's not that good. But you know, Akeem Olajuwon comes over from Nigeria, and uh, he's supposed to go visit St. John's, and he gets off at JFK, and he no one's there to pick him up, and he goes outside to look for the St. John's van or the coaches. It's freezing out here. One of the baggage handlers is Nigerian, and uh, he says, "Is it always this cold?" And the friends are, "Oh, you you got to go to Houston." It's freezing here in New York. You got to go somewhere like Houston. So that's <laughs> yeah, I've heard this one. Yeah, if St. John's had been there to pick up a Olajuwon one five slam and jam, it doesn't happen. But no, I mean, I think I honestly the serious point is like, and I don't know if you were the same way, 
you know, I was whatever. I was 13 years. It, it didn't seem like that crazy a summer. It yeah. didn't seem like all these dominoes were fun. You know, it, it didn't seem like this this transformational. We're living through history. It's only when you go back X years later and you say, you know, whoever, you know, David Stern drafts Michael Jordan and the Olympics turn a profit and you sort of go back and look at everything. I think one of the cool things about this book was um, people were like, God, now that I think about it, you're right. But it, it wasn't like we felt like you were living in history. Same, same with, you know, yeah. to, to go back, uh, you know, Henry VIII is not thinking this is going to uh, eventually foster another Ch- world power. Change global power for centuries to come. Yeah, yeah that, was, that was not his thought process. I agree. He had one thought process. It was not that. Um, it, it, is, it is funny, though, but like, that's why I like doing this podcast, because you go back and look at things under the guise of half forgotten history and you realize how different things could have been and, and how little things change everything in, in redoing that summer and redoing the book. And again, it's glory days, the summer of 1984. Was there one particular thing that you had forgotten or that stood out for you in researching the book that you were not expecting? Oh, man, uh, that's a great question. I, don't, I mean, sort of the, the two conclusions, A, were like, this was the summer of cable. And when we go back and tell yeah. the story of uh, sports and culture in the 80s and 90s, even you know, for the next 30, man, does cable loom large. But but I also, I, I got to say, I mean, you know, my, Michael, I don't know if you saw the uh, Scott, Scottie Pippen's uh, remarks today, notwithstanding, you know, my, Michael oh, Jordan's man. sort of becoming, uh, you know, Michael Jordan's kind of like, Great athlete. What a pity. We didn't we never knew what he stood for. He didn't take a stand. Now he's sort of a, a billionaire behind the playing golf. And um, I got to say, my respect for Michael Jordan went way up just because he got not just the finances, not just, boy, I'm worth a lot of money to a lot of people. A lot of people have positive associations with me. I can make a lot more money than the 550 grand or whatever, you know, the Bulls rookie contract. Um, right. But I, I think Jordan really understood that athletes needed more power and it wasn't you know it wasn't political power it wasn't muhammad ali it wasn't kaepernick but i think michael jordan at age 21 that summer really understood that he had more leverage than most athletes i mean michael jordan i think understood that better than any other basketball player he understood it better than bird magic and dr j that we've got the leverage here and I, I sort of came away thinking like michael jordan in a weird way is kind of a, a pioneering figure not because he took political stands or, you know, gave gave black power signs on the metal stand. But Michael Jordan really understood that the, the leverage was with the athletes and they could do a lot to change the balance of powers and unlock this value. And, you know, he started it in 84. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you ever read Dan Dockage tells a great story about Jordan sort of the they're playing golf and Jordan says, you know, I'll bet you X thousand dollars. And Dan Dockage says, Where'd you get that kind of money? And he goes, I'm, I'm going to make 10 times more money off the court than I am with the Chicago Bulls. That was in the summer of 84. And, you know, th- 37 years later, he's, he's a billionaire. And I think his NBA earnings were about, uh, you know, 89 million. So uh, yeah. he, was, he saw that one pretty coming pretty good. And it's funny. Another thing that changes something. He wanted to be an Adidas guy, but they weren't yeah. really interested in him. Oops, <laughs> you know, Phil Knight, hey, I'll take it. And uh, another empire was born because of one thing that didn't go a certain way. Um, well, this has been great. Uh, John, the book is fascinating, and it, it's obviously great for me because it's right in my wheelhouse. Uh, it, Glory Days, the summer of eight, uh, 1984, 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. Uh, I'm sure you can get it wherever you buy your books, right? Wherever you, wherever you can find it? 
I hope so. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, wherever wherever you buy books, be it uh, I can't remember the place in by you in Madison, Connecticut, great independent bookstore, or uh, you can you can get it on Amazon like everything else in this world. Like almost everything I'm currently wearing. Um, and it is funny. The book talks about the advent of cable, and we're having this discussion about the power of cable now over broadband, which has surpassed uh, cable. In fact, you know, you mentioned uh, MTV. One of the, f- the first video ever on MTV was uh, a song called Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. I think it's time for The Buggles to reform and come up with a new song called uh, Broadband Killed the Video Star. And that's sort of where we are now. Streaming and data are your new uh, dual sources of revenue. But uh, no, you're Check. right. 37 years is a pretty good run, though. I'll say that for cable. Uh, absolutely. Well, John, this has been great. I appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up again real soon. Yeah, you got it. That was good fun. Thanks. Thanks, Trey. So thanks to John Wertheim for joining us. Coming up next week, really a, a sort of an off-the-beaten-path episode. Someone you need to know and you need to understand the life that he lived from covering the first Super Bowl to JFK's assassination to the Vietnam War to founding the most successful magazine in magazine history, Magazine Launch. It's a guy who I'm very familiar with. It's my dad. You need to hear his story. We'll do that next week.